the movie Up in the Air, starring George Clooney, begins in a conference room in a random hotel where the main character, Ryan Bingham, is describing the figurative backpack that we all carry around in life. On the podium, next to the lectern, where he is speaking, is an actual backpack. And Bingham lists all of the people, all the obligations, all the worries that everyone walks around with each and every day. That literally weighs them down. Bingham takes great pride in how light his backpack is and how nothing weighs him down. He's able to be carefree and almost free of gravity. The title up in the air really comes from the notion that with no weight in our backpacks, we can almost fly. Bingham's right. We all have backpacks that we carry around with us each and every day. They hold in them our jobs, our family, and our obligations, both communally, religiously, civically. But those things really don't weigh us down. Some people have more than others in their backpacks with those things, obviously. But what I argue today really weighs us down, and that's found in our backpack, is the notion of regret. Regret is something that saddles us, and it slows us down in everything that we do. Who amongst us here today doesn't have some regret? It's hard to be Jewish and to not have regrets. I would put regrets into three categories. Wishing regrets, crystal ball regrets, and heavy regrets. A wishing regret is a regret like, I wish I went to China when I traveled to the Far East. Or I wish I bought the Acura instead of the Volvo. Feelings you have, but not much changes in the scheme of things in life from a wishing regret. A crystal ball regret are things you regret not having done because you don't own a crystal ball. I regret not buying Apple stock when it was $34 a share. I regret not bringing an umbrella to work today. I regret that I didn't go to the doctor for my physical earlier because then my cancer might have been more treatable when it was first found. Each of these regrets is based on a decision that would have necessitated a crystal ball to see into the future. In essence, they're not real regrets. They are wishes that we were superhumans, which we're not. And these regrets remind us that we're just mortal. But these aren't the type of regrets I want to focus on with you today. Rather, I want us to look at what I call heavy regrets. The kind of regrets that saddle our shoulders and weigh down our backpacks and eventually begin to change our posture from carrying around the weight to everywhere we go every day of the year. I would define a heavy regret as follows. Being disappointed in choices we made or did not make because it would have made our lives better than we feel it is today. Being disappointed in choices we made or did not make because it would have made our lives better than we feel it is today. Ultimately, heavy regrets are based deeply in dissatisfaction and a deep wish to change our destiny to a better place. And that's a lot to carry around every day. There are a lot of people in this room who are walking slower and exited and entered this building much slower because of the heavy regrets that they're carrying around in their backpack. In the four plus years I've been the rabbi here at Temple Emmanuel, I've heard heavy regrets like these. 
I regret that I had not chosen a career. I regret the person that I chose to marry. I regret the way that I spent money. I regret that I didn't spend more time with my children. I regret that I didn't spend more time with my spouse. I regret that I never said the words, I love you. I regret that I didn't spend more time with my parents when they were sick. I regret that I didn't spend more time with my parents when they were well. I regret that I missed the mark on what a bar about mitzvah is all about, and now my kids misunderstand its meaning. I regret that I was more focused on the game than the kids, and then the business instead of the house. I regret having my daughter join the family business. I regret not having my son join the family business. I regret never mending ways with my sister or my brother, my mother or my father, my son or my daughter. I regret that I didn't attend that family simcha. I regret the way that I spoke to my spouse, my boss, my employee. I regret the way that I spoke to my rabbi. For people to come and share this sampling of heavy regrets with me, they must have reached a point in their back pain where they couldn't take it anymore. In a book by Eric Erickson called The Life Cycle Completed, the author compares two contrasting points of view when we're faced with end-of-life situations. Integrity versus despair. Some people see all things as good and all things flowing, and some people focus on the roads that weren't traveled. And this leaves people with dissatisfaction or with heavy regret. My hypothesis is that in our community and in other communities, we have more people dwelling on roads not taken than on flowing satisfaction. If ever there was a time in one's life when heavy regrets are present, it's when a loved one is facing the end of their life. And I can testify to that. I saw it and I felt it on June 3rd and 4th of this past year as I stood by my father's bedside hours before he died. My dad was a person who lived life with many heavy regrets. In fact, as I saw him lying in that hospital bed, connected to a highway of tubes and wires that almost seemed to be weighing him down to the sheets, there was this notion of regret in his life that I felt. My dad spent so much of his life driving each and every day focused on the rearview mirror instead of the road ahead. On what happened that should not have happened, on how better choices and more thoughtful actions could have changed his life for the better. But as I stood there, I felt regret too. Monitors beeping away, not knowing if this was going to be a scary episode or the very last chapter of his life. This morning, I ask your indulgence to share a story of regret with you, both for the catharsis I think it will offer me and the demonstration of regret that might be burdening you. I hope to inspire you, inspire you from the story within the story, and I hope it inspires you to make a change and address any heavy regrets you have in your life. When my dad was in his late 40s, we lived on the west coast of Florida. My dad was the rabbi of a small synagogue, maybe 120 families. To broaden his horizons and to keep himself busy, my dad volunteered at the local sheriff's department for any clergy needs that might arise. Deep down, I think he was only trying to get out of parking tickets. About three months into volunteering his services, the sheriff of the county called my dad and invited him into his office. He said, Rabbi, we have a growing number of Jewish inmates in our prison system, and we think it appropriate for them to have clergy visits 
from people of the same faith. Would you be interested? My dad had never counseled or met with any prison inmate before, but he instinctively said yes. Before he knew it, two to three times a week, my dad was driving down to the prison and meeting with Jewish bank robbers, embezzlers, physical abusers, drug addicts, and common thugs. He would lead services for them, and then he would meet individually with them in counseling sessions. And he would talk about the idea of forgiveness and repentance, among other themes. In the early 80s, when some of these young people, and they were all young, were paroled after six to 24 months of incarceration, their parents had forsaken them, and they had nowhere to go. My dad made a profound impact in their lives. He was their tether to hope and their tether to reestablishing their lives. So my dad would have these ex-convicts come directly from prison to our home, where they would stay for a few days until they could get back on their feet, find a place to stay on their own, and find some employment. My mother loved this. (laughs) And if you ever want to know what a restless night's sleep is, try sharing your bunk bed with a convicted felon. (laughs) And this is all true, no embellishment. You can ask anyone in our family. About six months into this new role that my dad found quite satisfying, he received a phone call that would forever change his life. A man 18 years young had been in the prison for about 12 hours, and he was begging for a rabbi. My father made his way down to the jailhouse, and when my dad arrived, the sheriff was there to greet him. And he asked my dad if he could join him in the meeting. But my dad was confused. The sheriff had never joined him in a meeting before, and the sheriff's office wasn't even at the prison. The sheriff began to ask my dad if he had heard about the double murder in the affluent town of Palm Harbor, Florida. My dad replied, of course. Palm Harbor is a town like Cresco or Tenafly. It's full of working families and affluent community with Jews and Gentiles living side by side. This murder was a shock to the community. And the story had been plastered all over the news for the past 36 hours. My dad had the idea that he was about to become privy to more details on this case than the average newspaper reader, but he had no idea how close he would become. My dad walked into a jail cell, and he saw a shackled and frightened boy, the exact same age as his second son. He was 18 years young, but he looked more like 15. He had brown hair, brown eyes, and he was shaking in fear and from withdrawal. His name was Ira Amazon, and just 36 hours before, this boy did something that would forever change his life and the life of his neighbors. Ira was the second of three children. His parents were both Jewish, and they were both pharmacists, and they owned two successful drugstores near Palm Harbor. Ira had no criminal record, but was addicted to drugs from an early age. He grew up in the 70s and he became more popular by stealing all types of medicines from his parents' pharmacy to give to friends and to sell for income. One of Ira's pals was trying to sell a motorcycle. And Ira thought it would be great to own a motorcycle, but he didn't have the money. So, high on acid, he decided to break into his neighbor's home and steal money to buy this motorcycle. Around 3 a.m., On December 1st, 1981, Ira climbed in a bedroom window of his neighbor's home. Joy Chapin was a single mother of two girls, and Ira naively thought he could move around the house with no one hearing, take the money, and leave, all while he was high on acid. 
Joy woke up and screamed. Ira raped her. Her 12-year-old daughter heard the screams and instinctively knew to go to the phone and call for help. Ira saw her on the phone. With the lights on, she recognized his face as her neighbor, and he became frightened. He grabbed a knife from the kitchen, and he stabbed the 12-year-old girl, killing her. Then he took the knife, and he killed the mother. A three-year-old girl lay asleep in her bed. Ira never knew she was there. He climbed back out the window that he came in from, ran to his house up the stairs, took a shower, and faked a burglar in his own home, taking his mother's purse and all the contents and throwing them out the window. The next morning, when the police and investigators came and they were questioning neighbors and bystanders, Ira seemed nervous and he asked a lot of strange questions. A detective got suspicious and brought him in for questioning. And there, at the police station, Ira admitted to the heinous crime. He cried. He asked for his parents and a rabbi. And they called my dad. When my father walked into the room, he was scared and he was surprised. Ira could read Hebrew perfectly. He knew how to daven. He could read from the Torah with ease. He was familiar with Jewish culture and customs and traditions. Not what you would expect walking into a jail cell. My dad came back at least once a week to meet with Ira. He brought him a chumash and a sidor, his talis from his bar mitzvah. And he gave him something that few people gave Ira before, including his childhood rabbi. He gave him some attention. My father kept up his visits with Ira from the time of his capture through his incarceration and throughout his entire trial. Ira's parents deeded their home to a legal dream team to help their boy. The parents' only request of the attorneys was to save his life and keep him out of Florida's electric chair. The attorneys were successful. The jury came back with a unanimous recommendation for consecutive sentences of life in prison without parole. The judge, though, in a rare and very unusual move, overturned the recommendation of the jury and sentenced Ira to Florida's electric chair. Over time, my dad lost touch with Ira. On death row at the Florida State Penitentiary, he was many hours away by car, and it was very difficult to visit him, as regular pastoral visits were not afforded, only occasional visits were. A few years later, our family moved to Detroit, and my father had stopped communicating with Ira even by pen and paper. But the experience profoundly shaped my dad. He chose to earn his Ph.D. in pastoral counseling, and he focused on Jewish inmates in the prison system. And the core of his dissertation was written about Ira and his story. My dad talked about Ira periodically over the years, and I think he thought of him more often than we knew. There must have been some level of appreciation, some level of there, but for the grace of God go I. My dad and Ira's parents were very close in age. They each had multiple kids, and you never know how your children will turn out. Meanwhile, about nine years after being sent to death row, through a technicality and on many, many appeals, Ira's sentence was commuted to life in prison without parole. The judge's harsher sentence was overturned. As my dad got older, and as his health declined, he articulated to me that he wanted to reconnect with Ira, to see him, to visit him, and to counsel him. So I did some legwork to see where Ira was now imprisoned. 
I told my dad that I would fly down and together we would drive to see Ira, father and son, senior rabbi and junior rabbi, a time to bond and a time to connect. For my dad, who struggled professionally and felt that he never got a chance to show me his stuff, to show me his skills as a rabbi, this would be an important and a shared moment between two generations of rabbis that, frankly, were wired very differently and led rabbinic lives that were poles apart. Life moves quickly, and lots of things got in the way of our planned visit. Kids, work, travel, errands, you name it. In short, everything was reprioritized over time to push this to the bottom of the list. We dreamt of it for years, but we never went to go visit Ira together. For some strange reason, as I stood by my father's bedside on Saturday morning, June 4th, just before he died, this heavy regret was weighing me down. I couldn't move. Obviously, I had other regrets in my life and heavy ones, but this one seemed to symbolize for me the opportunities lost and the things left unsaid and undone that might have better shaped me or him or both of us. For three months after my dad died, my backpack was too heavy to bear. Through my summertime in Israel, at home, with family and friends here at the shul, I could barely move. My heavy regrets were paralyzing me. I decided this wasn't a healthy way to grieve. I had to get this load out of my backpack. Three weeks ago, I flew to Florida and I met with Ira Amazon, the rapist and the murderer, in Florida's Hardy Maximum Security Prison. It was one of the most powerful, fulfilling, surreal, and bewildering experiences of my entire life. First of all, like I imagine is the case for most of you, I've never sat across from a murderer before. I had no idea what to expect. After pre-planning and thorough searches of my person and weeks of preliminary background checks, out came a gray-haired, clean-cut man, looking a few years older than the 50 that he is. He wore blue fatigues that were crossed between hospital scrubs and army-issued uniforms. An identification tag bearing his name and picture was pinned to his lapel. He shuffled in the room with blue keds on his feet, and prison-issued glasses were slipping off the nose of his face. He squinted, trying to make out my face and who I was. Guards watched cautiously, out of earshot, but close enough to make me feel safe. We shook hands. I explained to him who I was and how I knew him. I told him about the death of my father and much more. How he, Ira, influenced my dad's life. How my dad wrote his dissertation with him as the focal point. How I had poured over every word of his transcript of trials and appeals and any shred of history there was to know about him. Ira spoke with a slight southern accent. He was polite, he was articulate, and he was very well read. Ira told me that he's read more than 8,000 books while in prison. We spoke for two and a half hours. We spoke about the night of the crime. We spoke about his faith. He told me that he still has all of the books my dad gave him in his cell, and that he recites the Shema from the Siddur my father gave him every night before lights out. When he told me that, I cried. Ira told me about his internal journey over the past 31 years, from confinement and death row to open population, 
along with his emotional journey. It was only 12 or 13 years ago that Ira was able, through counseling, maturation, and time, to ask for the forgiveness of his parents and siblings for what it was that he had put them through. He wrote an honest and raw letter to the surviving members of the family he killed. In it, he explained that he can never right the wrong that he did, and that he should never be forgiven, and that he should never be released. He included that sacrificing his freedom in life hardly seems justice for that what he had taken away. He wrote the letter neither for the survivors, and he didn't write the letter for a parole board. He did it for himself. He admitted his heavy regret. Ira told me that he reached a place in his incarceration when he realized the following irrefutable circumstances. He would never be released from prison. He should never be released from prison. And the regrets that he had in his life were weighing him down, and he needed to articulate them. For Ira, these were heavy regrets. For his parents and siblings, they also had very heavy regrets. And they realized through the regrets and through the admission of them, it wouldn't free Ira from the miles of razor wire that surrounded the prison. But their backpacks, and especially Ira's backpack, which was weighing him down, could get a little lighter. After offering apologies, articulating regret and refreshing the way he saw his life, Ira could continue on the road before him as opposed to focused on the rearview mirror. After these admissions, Ira was able in prison to earn his GED and has enrolled in numerous classes. He's now a certified paralegal, a licensed barber, and a trained computer technician. He's currently earning a chauffeur's driver's license. Many of these classes are geared to rehabilitate convicts that will eventually walk out the prison doors. But such is not the case for Ira. But for the past 13 years, he is free in his mind. He's freed from the weight of heavy regret that slowed him down and shackled his thoughts and his movements. I don't share this story about Ira with you to encourage you to show empathy for this criminal or to have you understand how his mind worked or to consider forgiveness for his crime. I can't forgive him. I doubt most rational people could forgive him. He did the very worst thing imaginable. He should be punished, and he should feel guilt. But I share the story with you about Ira, a man who was riddled with heavy regrets and a demonstration of the irony that exists in life. Here it was, I who came to see him, to mitigate my heavy regrets as best as I could by visiting him without my dad. And it was Ira who explained to me how he was able to release heavy regrets that had left him bound and hopeless to now feel freer within a prison. All of us have heavy regrets. What are they? Are they weighing you down? Do you realize that they're weighing you down? Can you begin to remove them from your backpack that you lugged in here today and that you schlep around with you every day of your life? Regret is nothing new. The Torah reading that we read from today talks about the regret that Abraham had in his almost sacrifice of Isaac, both through the words that are said and the words that are left unsaid, the things that are unspoken and the feelings that are made. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is left with the regret and the tension that exists between making Abraham choose between Ishmael and Yitzchak, between she and Hagar, riddling her life with heavy regrets.
But we learn best from God what we should do with our regrets. In the story of Noah and the ark and the flood, which we'll read in a few weeks in Shul, after God realizes the devastation and the mess that was created, God says to Noah and the survivors of the flood, Lo osif lekalel od et adama. Never again will I make such a destruction on the land. God articulates his regret. God says the words aloud and Noah hears it. And we hear it every time we hear the story. To err is human, but to regret and to articulate the regret is actually divine. One of the core principles in helping ourselves is that we articulate an emotion for the catharsis it offers us. Because articulating our feelings matters. Clearly, God knew this. I told absolutely no one but Dory and the prison chaplain about my trip to see Ira, and no one knew of its purpose except for me, deep down in my soul. However, after the visit, when I told my mother where I had gone and answered her question of why with the explanation that I had regretted not going while dad, with Dad while he was alive and that I needed to do this, I felt like 10 pounds came off of my backpack. I felt a difference. There are other regrets I have in my life that still keep me tethered to the ground, but that particular regret was released. And equal to the visit, telling my mother released the bricks from my load. Dory and dear friends who had no idea where I went or what I was doing told me that I looked different to them, that my face and my body seemed different. Maybe releasing these heavy regrets didn't only change me emotionally, but perhaps it affected my physical posture as well. Now, to us here today. Sometime in the next 48 hours, after the Yontif meal is over and the discussions about the high holidays are on pause, I want you to find a quiet corner. Maybe it's in your bedroom, maybe in your basement, maybe it's in the attic, maybe your bathroom, or perhaps outside on your deck. The key is, it has to be a place where you are alone. And I want you to speak the words of your heavy regrets. Words that I have seen you formulate as I stood next to you over these past years, at hospital bedsides, at a hospice, in a funeral home, at shivas, preparing for family bar mitzvahs, or at weddings. Heavy regrets you might have had about the choices affecting the life that you lead today that you wish could be better. But this time, do more than think them up in your mind. Say the words. Let the sound resonate in your eardrums. Let it enable you, let it ennoble you, and let it empower you. And if that regret involves another person, I want you to dig deep and to muster the courage and find the time in the next ten days during the Aserah Yemei Teshuvah to speak the words to them that you first articulated to yourself. Like most things in life that matter, it'll be hard. Very hard. If it were easy, everyone would do it. But, in doing so, I doubt you will regret it. But if you don't do it, you might be weighed down with that heavy regret for a very long time. My teacher and my friend, Rabbi Daniel Hartman, reminded me of the Talmudic teaching that asked the question of a man who enters the mikvah, which purifies us, holding a snake, which renders us impure. 
The rabbis say, Mahu. If you're in the mikvah, which makes you pure, but the snake makes you impure, what are you? Are you pure or impure? It's a dilemma. The rabbis give the answer that every time you go into the mikvah, you become pure. But instantly, when exiting and holding on to this snake, you are rendered impure again. And the only way to become pure is to release the snake from your hands and then enter the mikvah. The lesson in there is so obvious. Our destiny is in our hands. If we release it, then we can become free. If not, it weighs us down. Ultimately, the backpack we walk around with is something that we have packed. And only we can unpack that backpack. It's 100% in our hands. So how can your life change? How do you mitigate your regrets today? Do you go back to school for your career? Do you start spending money a little differently? Do you start saying, I love you? Do you spend more time with your parents? Do you add your brother to the family business? Do you sit with your loved one and share feelings that will be hard to articulate, but will mean so much for your respective relationship together? No matter what happens, no matter what path you choose, we cannot unring a bell, we cannot rewrite history, and we can't change the past. When we drive through life, the rearview mirror only tells us what's behind us, which can shape our future. But today is a time to set the course and begin to drive forward and to look forward as well. I would never dare say that we could fix all the heavy regrets in our lives. This process that I recommend can only mitigate regret. And mitigating regret and pivoting towards change is the essence of the season, this holiday, and this very moment. It's the beauty and it is the brilliance in these yamim noraim, these days of awe. Such was the case for me. Visiting Ira did not make me feel whole again, but I did feel less broken. Addressing the heavy regrets in your life will not make you feel whole again, but it should make you feel less broken. Passover is a time to clean out our kitchen cupboards, and Rosh Hashanah is a time to clean out our backpacks. Each of us has one, and they're all unique, and they're all loaded with all types of things. Some things in our backpacks we need to keep us grounded, and some things we need to keep us tied to our past. But some of the weight in our backpack is from heavy regrets that we can do without, that we need to free ourselves from. Doing so should allow us the strength and the agility to address the new year of 5,772 for the better. May that be God's will. Amen.